a session with 50 students is going to be really hard, especially to really coach somebody technically. Don't think you're going to solve all the world's problems. Um, I think that's probably the best advice that I can give to coaches is, is take that pressure off yourself. You're not going to like drastically change every single kid there in that session. It takes time. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So today's guest on the Pace Performance Podcast is John Garrish, and anyone that's on Instagram has probably come across John and his account predominantly focused around speed training. Now, the reason I wanted to get John on was... Firstly, his work in high school athletics over in the US and with the uh, improvements in facilities and the more employed S&C staff in high schools in the UK, I wanted to get that insight. So hopefully it gives information for those in the UK and bringing that back from the more established US. But what I wanted to also get from him was speed training for youth athletes, yes, but speed training for lots of youth athletes at the same time, definitely. So anyone that's working with athletes as a whole are very rarely going to have, especially team sport athletes, very rarely you're going to have one and two. You're going to have 15 or 20, 25 or 30. So to get insights from John who deals with 70 or 80, I think is great learning for any SNC coach out there. So some great learnings from John. I hope you enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hytro. Have you tried Hytro, the wearable blood flow restriction solution that is unlocking better recovery in athletes? While many have used BFR for rehab, Hytro are demonstrating the huge impact BFR can have on recovery and performance when used for post-exercise recovery. Through their innovative design, BFR straps are integrated into shorts and t-shirts, allowing BFR to be delivered to groups of athletes safely and more conveniently than ever before. Check them out at hytro.com or email warren at hytro.com to find out how Hytro can give your athletes a competitive edge. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics Force Plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology, and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, 
EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. So without further ado, over to the episode with John. John Garish, thank you for joining me on the Pace Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Rob. My I pleasure. It. No, my pleasure. And congratulations are in due, uh, are due. I've already said that before, but I think I should officially say that when we're recording. But National High School Strength Coach of the Year, is that right? Yes, sir. That's correct. Good work. Um, given by the NHSSCA. Nice. Good work. So that was this last weekend. Yes, sir. It was in Nashville. Um, I'm spending some time in Georgia now with the family. So we had a nice weekend in Nashville, was able to celebrate a little bit, had some friends and family that came to town. Um, Nashville was an easy selling point there. <laughs> you know? um, but I'd like to thank also some people wanted to spend a, a really important moment with me. So that was um, obviously nice to have them there and now spending a week in Georgia with the folks. Good work. And I mean, probably not going to the detail of the the process to actually get that award but it's pretty rigorous i was pleased that it's so rigorous and that you were involved in the process you didn't just turn up and here's, here's your award you don't even know but yeah so even it adds even more kudos to the award i think yeah, i appreciate so, uh, it yeah good work. the organization does a great job from the um, nomination process to selection process announcement process everywhere in between very elaborate process um, and something obviously that that makes it even more meaningful, um, even if it was just a select few of my peers that just said that's the guy we wanted to recognize. Obviously, I would appreciate that. But the fact that it came as a whole um, from many of my peers had to go through a process of my my coworkers and colleagues on campus kind of being in that um, in that same conversation with the organization uh, makes it really a, 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 a huge difference. And it made something it, it really meant a lot to me to win um, and and be recognized for that honor. Good work. While I look at that beautiful backdrop that you've got there in the uh, in the background, would you mind just giving us yeah. a bit of a, a background to you and anyone that doesn't know who yeah, you sure. are, yeah, what you've done, what you're currently doing now? Sure. So I'm going into year nine at North Broward Preparatory School, which is in Coconut Creek, Florida. Um, that is pretty close to my home. It's actually the, the, the school campus is literally a stone's throw. If I warm up well enough from the house that I grew up in, um, it's the field that I used to go and sneak on and run away from security when I wasn't supposed to be there and oh, so run it's your, on the track. It's and, your, it was your school. It was not. Oh, okay. No. So okay. again, I was just that kind of, um, that person making trouble sneaking onto the campus. I went to the local public school. Um, but I, I was familiar with the school quite a bit. Um, not as familiar as, uh, you know, it was still a little bit of a surprise that the, um, they had a position that they had at the time I was just working in, um, the college setting. I was at Rutgers university and was kind of looking, you know, I knew that that was, that was a graduate internship. That wasn't something that was going to be long-term. Um, and I hadn't really given thought to the high school level. I did want to move back to South Florida. That was something that was important to me um, always. Um, and so obviously I knew I had only a few select options between the campus, the, the college communities that were in South Florida. And then this opportunity came about, um, and I was kind of tentative at first. I wanted to hear more about it, but I wasn't expecting what I was going to hear, um, in the initial interview. And when I went and spoke with our athletic director, who's still my athletic director today, 
Um, I was just blown away by the opportunities that I would have. Um, and to be honest with you, that everything, my experiences have surpassed those expectations or those hopes from that early conversation. Because again, nine years later, I have no, um, no thoughts of going anywhere else. I have no aspirations of moving on anywhere else. It's a really, really good place. There's a lot that we can continue to build, I think. Um, but it's been an amazing um, experience and they've supported me in way more ways than just, you know, coaching in the weight room. Some of the things that we've been able to do and bring to our campus community through some additional training opportunities and what have you. Um, it's been a really, really good place. It's been home for me. So been there nine years, um, going on year nine anyway. Um, I've been the school's head track and field coach for six of those years now. Um, so that was something that kind of came on later. Um, my athletic experience, I won't go too much into it, but I was a football player for the bulk of my life. That was my sport of interest, um, American football. Um, and eventually, um, when I was in college, I was unable to continue playing because of some concussions. So I wanted to pick something else up and wanted to continue. So I picked up track and field. So that was really my first experience in track and field. Um, I hadn't really, I had given thought to coaching track. Um, especially in particular, hammer throw was my event um, early in my career, uh, thinking, you know, was I going to go strength and conditioning? Was I going to go track and field? Sports psychology was another kind of career that was in the in the thoughts of, for me. That was kind of what I was my my line of study through grad school. Um, and again, ended up going the strength and conditioning route, which was my initial aspiration growing up. Um and so the first kind of experience, the first opportunity that came up to coach a sport on campus was was track for me. I mean, we in that initial interview that I mentioned with RAD, he said, the one rule is you're never going to coach a sport here. Um, is that okay with you? And my first answer was absolutely not because I don't like coaching sports and, you know, in their specifics, but because I knew that that was going to pull me away from probably the other sports that I'd be coaching. Here, American football is a fall sport. Most strength coaches are also football coaches. And in the fall, that means they're probably not spending a whole lot of time in the weight room with um, the other sports. I didn't want that to be me. Um, when, the, um, when the conversation came up about track and field, it was like a kind of wait a minute moment of thinking, maybe this is something that we can make work. So I think that opportunity changed the entire course of uh, probably my career, to be honest with you. Um, certainly of my position at North Broward and certainly our program at North Broward, not just strength and conditioning kind of merging with track and field, but track and field also merging with strength and conditioning. Those two programs, I feel like have gone hand in hand. And we've, thankfully, I have a, a, a really um, incredible staff that helps me make it work. But I think that's been the best thing for both of those programs is when my AD thought, you know what, maybe we should merge these two programs. And we had that initial conversation. So again, nine years later, six years later, here we are. Those are the, that's the bulk of the hats that I wear. Um, another thing that is, is super, super important to me is my, um, what I call speed school, which is a free speed training session. And it's kind of, it's grown to more than just a session. Um, it's become, you know, not only do we do events, but it's, it's kind of become, I don't want to say an identity cause that sounds kind of cliche, but, um, it's been something that's been really meaningful, not just to myself and to our campus community and our, our community as a whole off campus. Um, but I think to our staff members, it's it's become and, and to our students it's grown very important as well i've got a couple of questions on that but just to give sure. the audience in the, here in the uk because we have nowhere near the established system that you guys from high school to college etc 
where kind of if a high school has got a strength and conditioning coach they're more often not do you have some teaching requirements and teaching responsibilities and they may have a couple a couple of hours of the cool stuff per day or per week that they enjoy doing um just give us a give us an idea of the scale of the operation that you guys have got there just briefly just so sure UK yeah know the kind of thing we're dealing with and that side of things, especially in the school day, it's probably quite a bit less elaborate than many of my friends and colleagues that are in the state that I'm in right now in Georgia or Texas. Like that's where you see a lot of those programs that it's like they have a full strength and conditioning staff that have responsibilities of various sports and sports are working in and out of the, of the school day. One of the first, that first conversation, again, I can keep going back to it, but that first quote unquote interview um, with, with my athletic director, another thing that we discussed was the, the vast majority of the things that we were going to be doing were going to occur out of the outside of the school day. So you can imagine as a, um, at that time I was 23, 23 years old coming to coming back home to South Florida and the athletic director says, you're going to have some teams before school. You're going to have some teams after school, but you're not going to have a bulk of responsibility. You're not going to have really any responsibility throughout the school day. School also is kind of like a, uh, especially at that time kind of brought me anxiety, like being back in a school setting. I won't get into that, but I was like a little bit uncomfortable at first. So when I heard that, I was like, okay, my hours are going to be pretty sweet. Um, I don't know that I'm going to be able to see as many students maybe as I would like, but we can get creative. Um, and this was something obviously that I wanted to make happen. Now, as that's gone on, um, I feel as though to bring our program more success, we're going to want to get more students in the school day, to be honest with you, because I think we've grown to a scale. We've grown to a point where we're not able to influence as many students outside the school day. So, again, a lot of my, my peers um, work in a setting where they train kids throughout the school day. You can have a class period of 70 students and you can have seven of those. That's a that's a lot of students that you see on a daily basis, nearly 500. Um and, you know, again, for us, we have our students, our student athletes training before school. We have our student athletes training after school and a few groups after school. And then I'll have my I'm a pre-K. We're in a pre-K through 12 school. So we have three year olds to 18 year olds. Doesn't mean we're seeing all of those students, but we do have three middle school um, personal fitness classes, which are basically our intro to strength and conditioning classes that occur throughout the school day. So that's kind of something that's grown. I see our middle schoolers in the school day, see our high schoolers before and after school. Um, and then in the summer, we train through straight through. So again, this is kind of my week away. But as soon as we get back, we're back to hitting the ground running. And I'm thankful to have a staff on campus that's that's keeping things going this week. And it didn't have to, you know, completely halt with my being out of town. Did I paint a pretty, pretty good picture? Absolutely. Paint a perfect okay. picture. So the thing you've been given what you just said there in terms of the track and field and that that kind of influence and the speed school, yep. you've become, when you look at your yep. social media, and I'm sure anyone that knows your name probably associates you with, with speed training. So I'd love to dive into that topic if that's all right. I know it's a probably a hot it's a hot topic for any time that you that you do these kind of things or do talks or anyone that kind of interacts with you. But I'd love to get your take on differences, key differences that exist between coaching adults when it comes to speed training and coaching youth athletes when it comes to speed training. Probably one of the biggest differences, and I'll go throughout a, a typical day, especially in the summer, where I could see 
Um, our, I'll have our college slash elite speed group at 6 a.m. I'll have our students at 7.30 a.m., our, our, our male students at 7.30 a.m. We'll have our female students at 9 a.m. Um, I'll have, in the instance of last week, I had a couple of um, private professional American football player sessions to follow there. Um, and then I come back in the afternoon with some of our like rascal 10, 11, 12 year olds, if not younger. Um, so throughout a typical day, I might see everybody from a, I mean, heck, I might see maybe even against my will, like somebody super, super young, not against my will, but like not necessarily what they need at that time. But maybe it's a um, nephew or somebody, a family that I'm close with that I'm working with a young kid that might be like six or seven. Um, and obviously that's going to be a different conversation probably. And that's probably not where my, um, experience is going to help as much. But what I think you would notice in looking at those groups is there's, there's not a whole lot of difference from a standpoint of the strategy and process of programming those sessions. Um, I think it's very important to have some sort of system in order. Of course, it's important to have progressions in order, and that might be where there might be some big differences, whether advancing toward, you know, obviously bounding progressions. If anybody is following me on social media has been a big topic. That's what I spoke at the conference this weekend about. Um, obviously, like there's going to be progressions that are necessary in there, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But what it's going to look like in particular is we're going to go through a general warm-up. We're going to go through some form of plyometric or a locomotive plyometric, like a basic skip, gallop, hop, bound. Um, and that's going to be the same for everybody. We're going to go through some sort of technical progression, some, some sort of um, drilling type process, some, some process, uh, some set of exercises or sequence of exercises that are going to be more drill-oriented. Um, and then we're going to do some true speed work that might be disguised in games or races. Um, but for the most part, every one of those sessions is going to follow that same model. And every one of those sessions, I'm going to have the, um, you know, high level professional athlete doing gallops the same way that I'm going to have the, you know, high schoolers that can't walk and chew gum at the same time doing gallops for very different reasons, maybe. Um, but there are things, and I think the important thing for me is I know what my days look like. I know what my, um, strengths are. I certainly know I'm, I'm not one afraid to share what my weaknesses are. Um, I think one of my strengths is working in big groups. I think my strengths are one of my strengths are being able to reach anyone at any given age. Um, I think my biggest weakness, um, a lot of coaches, this is something I spoke about in detail this weekend as well. My, my greatest weakness is, is my, my verbal communication. So um, I know that when I'm cueing, I want to find constraints or some, some other tactile form of cueing that's going to take my words out of the process. Um, and that might be where you might see some differences, especially with the young athletes and the older athletes. Um, the, the volume of words, the amount of words that are shared, um, the amount of detail that I discuss. Um, so obviously a professional level athlete, somebody that has, for the most part, uh, the, the, the 
the private clients that'll reach out to me, especially that are higher level athletes, are probably looking to work with me for the same reason that you mentioned. Either somebody put them into contact or they saw my social media and they said, that's a speed guy. Um, or, you know, that's a, especially more specifically, that's a linear speed guy. And I understand that. I don't, I think it's good to kind of find what our strengths are. Um, that, that interest, that passion, that strength, I think came from me like years and years ago. If you don't know anything about the States, Florida and South Florida in particular is known for its speed. So it was like either you're fast down here or you're not making it. So that, that's always kind of become like the identity of the area from an athletic standpoint. So for me, not only was that something that was influential early on and something that inspired me as a, as a young athlete and that was a bit of my training method as a young athlete, but it also kind of became the easy kind of spot to fit in down here to be an influence and to be somebody that can work with a large number of students, excuse me, a large number of athletes. Um, that kind of became the person that it was the easy kind of spot to fill. It was the easy box to check. And then again, it grew from there, from coaching track to working with a bunch of students through speed school. That just became what was my my area of interest, especially. So when a, when a, a higher level athlete, quote unquote, then, you know, or an older athlete outside of high school um, comes and wants to work with me, usually that is what they're looking for. They're not looking for, you know, even though, you know, I, I can design them a program in the weight room, that's not necessarily usually what they're going to hire me for. They're going to they're going to want to work with me. Um, from a speed standpoint. So when you have somebody like that, more often than not, they're a little more um, seasoned, they're a little more well-versed in, in training methods, and have probably been coached by a large number of people or coached by a high level of people that they probably, number one, understand some of the reasons why we're doing some of the things. But number two, they um, want to know, you know, they, they want to hear more. They want to have more detailed conversations. Whereas my large group, high schoolers, middle schoolers, like they don't want to know why we're doing this with that. And, you know, I might, I might close the session with a few brief, you know, um, discussion points of, of why we're doing certain things, but they don't want to know the ins and outs of what a drum drill is doing for them or what, you know, a wicket series is doing for them. Um, you know, and, and more often than not, that's just going to disturb the session. Whereas again, you work in a one-on-one -on -one setting, a higher level athlete, you can have, you can kind of break up the session a little bit more with, um, those discussion points. So that's a, that's a big point that I would say changes the words that I use, how I approach it, um, with some of those higher level, well, actually, usually the, the high schoolers are the most stubborn of anyone. Um, they, they kind of learn these sort of, um, you know, when we when we dial back to our kind of like remedial skills, the movement skills of skipping and galloping, more often than not, the high school boys like look around and think like, this isn't cool. I don't want to be doing this. Um, and then they realize that, yes, it becomes number one, that's a big part of our program and you better get used to it. Um, but number two, that it does advance and it is something that we use for a, a large number of reasons. Another, obviously kind of street cred cool point opportunity is them also seeing those higher level athletes do those drills, um, which is helpful as well. So they like to kind of learn that by seeing that 
Um, again, some things might be new to them or some things might be old to them that uh, becomes a little bit tougher for certain groups to um, grab their attention at first. Um, but at, for the most part, again, the words that maybe I'm using, the amount of words, the volume of words, but also, you know, maybe the volume of reps as well um, might be a little bit different or the, or the progression that we, we go through might be slightly different. But for the most part, we have the same boxes that we want to check for every session, um, every long-term or short-term program that we're going through with whoever it is. Um, they're not going to look a whole lot different. They might sound a little bit different, 100%. if that makes sense. A few questions off the back of that. It's very on, very honest of you to say that sure. verbal communication is not your not necessarily your strong point, but you've worked around it with the designing of the session set constraints so you don't have to have that verbal communication. Have you got any specific examples that you could give us there? Um, no, where, 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 struggle, where you would, where you would or, uh... design a specific drill or specific practice so you don't have to say necessarily ver- communicate verbally but you've put that yeah. into a, a drill so it happens it forces the athlete into happening yeah i mean there there's so many there's so many different um sort of constraints that i like to use um uh, a brief story and i'll and i'll answer that more more formally um the the most important the best class that i ever sat in and I believe whether I ended up being a high school strength and conditioning coach and track and field coach or a professional, I, I mean, it, it, I don't think it would have mattered the level. The best um, class that I took was a graduate level motor learning and skill acquisition class. The, the teachings of, um, yes, absolutely, communication style and the things that were best to reach varying levels and ages of students, but also the workings of constraints and deliberate practice and things along those lines. I couldn't replace what I learned in that class, in that course. So all of the time in school, that was probably my most valuable course and still the thing that I use more to this day, probably than anything else through through my studies. So Along those lines, I think that's kind of been what our program has modeled more so than, you know, a, a, a lot in the in strength and conditioning, volume matters, load matters, absolutely, sets and reps absolutely matter. But to me, our program is less about the X's and O's and the sets and reps as it is to a motor learning and skill acquisition style program. So we want to learn how to move well. But more importantly, understand that all athletes are going to move in a slightly different manner. So how do we now apply something and cast this wide net to a large group or throw out these, um, you know, bunch of um, this bunch of bait to a large number of students? That is something that's appealing to each one of those and something that they can um, kind of create their own solutions to. Constraints have been a big part of that. So whether it be a simple wicket drill. My favorite part about wicket drill, uh, about the wickets is I'm not going to use many words when they're running through the wickets. Um, similarly, it might be a, a dowel overhead progression or a varying hand position progression. That again gives them that slight tactile to- cue of, okay, I want, if I want to um, improve or enhance front side action through our sprint mechanics, and we put our hands on our hips, they can feel kind of through the crevice of their hip, they can feel the action of the hip flexor or the activity of the hip flexor when that hip is 
being more violent or elaborate in its in its flexion versus if there's more backside action, they're not going to feel much activity of the hip flexor. So just going through a simple like switch drill or boom, boom drill, whatever, whatever coach you talk to, what it might be kind of just whether it be in place or, or a gradual movement progression. Um, again, that would probably be the easy one of saying versus me saying, no, you want to, you want knee drive or you want more front side action, which you say front side action to a middle schooler and they're like, what the heck are you talking about? Um, again, that would be maybe a point where the, the hand positioning goes to hands on waist and they feel the activity of the hip flexor. They feel the pinching through the hip flexion of their fingers that that tells me they're getting more front side action versus backside action. Or more importantly, that tells them that they're getting that front side action. And, and again, that's something they want to feel. And then all that is, is now context later on to when we're truly sprinting. And I can say maybe there is more technical um, verbiage that comes into play. And I say, hey, remember when we did that drill, you felt that. I want you to feel that also when you're sprinting. Um, so again, maybe that's a brief example um, but I think that's probably the best one offhand because it, it filters everywhere else into my programming to the reason why I like skips, gallops, hops is it varies the position uh, or it varies the strike, the contact of the foot on the ground, among other things from s swinging segments to rotation. Rotation is a thing of like if you try to coach an athlete on what degree of rotation they're supposed to have at either their torso or shoulder or hip especially while sprinting, good luck if you even try that because it's just not going to happen. So we can use these kind of varying intensities or varying uh, movements, um, in my opinion, to allow the athlete to feel it and get practice and rehearsal at different degrees of rotation, different um, contacts, foot contacts on the ground, both in frequency and placement of the foot. Um, that has been really beneficial to me not having to say like our technical drills Obviously, when, actually, when we use those, I want to use less words instead of make it be like an over coaching session, which I think is a little bit uncommon for us strength and conditioning coaches, because in the weight room, it's words, 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 words. Um, we get out on the field. I, I want a little bit less of that. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with John. Hope you enjoyed part one. So part two kicks off with some insights from John of how to conduct speed training sessions with youth athletes when there is 50 60 or 70 of them how you can get your points across and how you can structure your structure your sessions effectively to make it easy and get the most out of your time with your athletes so really interesting part two coming up this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by samson equipment Samson Equipment has been manufacturing elite strength equipment since 1976. Based in New Mexico, Samson provides professional weight room solutions for those looking to lead the way in advancing our strength and conditioning profession. Being a direct manufacturer, the team at Samson brings fully customization capabilities in not only branding, but in custom equipment needed to execute your programming. The Samson team brings many years of experience not only in coaching, but in manufacturing high quality strength equipment. So there is no vision too great. If you can dream it, they can build it. Find them on social media at Samson underscore EQ. And for more information, visit their website, samsonequipment.com or email andy at andy 
at samsonequipment.com. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade, with the addition of the new Icon X rack range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And now back to the episode with John. One thing that I think will resonate with a lot of people, because 95% of people who are listening now would suggest are working with team sports. But one thing that is common with team sports and the, the population that you're in is large numbers. There's very few people, I would guess, that are working with ones and twos. It's probably 25s, 30s and, and upwards. So is, is, <laughs> is there any tips and tricks that you would... Uh, Tell, explain to people how you can manage a large group and still get the desired outcomes that you want when it comes to speed training? Sure. So, I mean, off the bat, this is assuming too that uh, it, there's a complete guaranteed inability to find help. So I'm going to just One assume that because obviously, yep. So that was us for the first six years or so, seven years really. Um, with the exception of a few interns that have done a really, really good job. But um, for the most part, you kind of keep them under your, under your belt and, and keep the group together. Um, if you can find people you trust and you can kind of split up that group a little bit more, even if like I encourage our, you know, my, my high school strength and conditioning colleagues, if you have a, if you have a high school, if you have a teacher that you trust and is positive and is willing to learn, that's somebody you want to have around, you know, because in the school setting, you might be able to find someone that can kind of serve a purpose in a group, whatever it may be. It can be a, a med ball throw or something like that. That'll split up the group a little bit more, brings a positive mindset, brings something positive to the training environment. Um, if you can do that, I think that, so again, I'm going to assume that you can't find help, but if you can, and you're able to kind of split up the groups a little bit, I think think less about finding an expert technician and find somebody that can really help you um, just kind of be a person that you can tell them what to do. And if they're willing to learn and willing to hear, they're probably going to do a good job and it's probably going to be better. It's definitely going to be better than a crazy period of inactivity if that's what you're going to have, obviously. So um, with that said, in program design, you want to limit that inactivity. So say you are a one-man band. um, And again, there's been a numerous times throughout my career that that's been the case. Um, it's, it's all about the design of that program. We want to limit inactivity, but you also don't want to just like crush the kids with volume throughout the session. So the way that we go about, um, 
and obviously this is also, you're definitely going to need a great amount of space. So um, the way that we go about these sessions is kind of in the same line, same discussion as my thinking of not being very strong with using my words. Imagine it's challenging to use your words with one person. It's even more challenging to use them with 80, 80 people. So the, the more we can find those drills, those constraint-based um, opportunities for the athletes to learn or feel what we want them to feel through those technical drills to apply the forces that we want them to apply or feel the positions that we want them to feel through the other drills, we have to have that in mind when we're designing the session. So if I'm by myself and I have the large group, we're all doing everything pretty much together excuse me, um, and they're split out on our football sideline. And we'll go through our general warm-up, which is going to be a series of, I like to use skips and gallops versus instead of using jogging, um, maybe as, or, you know, what maybe in our weight room, we're going to use jumping jacks or something like that. Our opportunity to raise body temperature, increase heart rate, and wake up the CNS a little bit is going to be through those uh, remedial kind of um, low amplitude skips and gallops to start. So that's going to be generally how we start. Again, that should be a thing. That should be one of two things. Either the kid gets it right away um, and they were in a formidable physical education program in elementary school, um, or two, they're going to be really easy to point out who's struggling with it. Number one, they're uh, going to stick out from everybody else. But number two, that kid that doesn't know how to skip forward and backward or gallop forward and backward, they're going to stop and look around and be like, why am I the only person that can't do this? And kind of probably like playfully laugh um, with a little bit of embarrassment, which obviously you never want to like, I'm not calling attention to that kid, but that kid is going to stand out. So maybe that's somebody that, again, you can kind of one off later in the session or later at times, but generally those skips and gallops are pretty easy to grasp early on. So that's a, that's a movement that we know we're not going to have to um, worry too much about in, from a learning curve standpoint. There are going to be kids that struggle with it. But again, generally, anyone can get it at, at some point. You know, somebody's, They're all going to catch on at some point, you would think. And that's probably going to happen in that session just by watching and observing. Um, and then we'll go through some general, like just kind of, global mobility type of movements that are again just prepping us for the session nothing crazy especially because we're talking about large groups that it has to be simple and it has to be quick and efficient um but that's kind of worked in with the skips and gallops and then as we go through that um that warm-up progression not only is the progression maybe gonna uh go a little more complex the amplitude of those skips and gallops are going to increase, um, again, kind of drive us towards what's going to happen in the session. Um, so maybe it's a, uh, you know, maybe we're going, uh, emphasizing gallops that day. So we'll go through our nice, easy gallops with our stretches, quote unquote, in between. And then as we, um, as we get toward the end of the warm up, we'll start to increase the amplitude, whether it be, um, gallops for height um, first, and we'll go 50%, 75%, max height, gallops for height and distance, gallops for distance, gallops for speed. And again, that's kind of like, that creates a playful environment that 
Um, you know, they're having fun. It feels like they're in a park. It gets us back to like our childhood, but also there's some really, really good things happening through those movements, in my opinion, um, that are, you know, I guess maybe a, a really smart coach would be able to replace them with something else. But to me, they're irrepla irreplaceable with large groups and, you know, with the simplicity of them, but also the, the varying ways to vary what either the, you know, intensity is or the amplitude or direction of those are. Um, I think it really applies to what we're trying to accomplish throughout the session. So then we'll go through again, we'll higher amplitudes on those gallops, take a brief minute. Um, obviously I'm not going to talk about like hydration, but hopefully you have some sort of hydration system or you can count on those kids to, to bring their water. <laughs> like that's, that's going to be on you and your, in your situation, obviously, but we'll get a brief water break then at that point, and then we'll come back and we'll dial back the intensity um, and go through some of our more technical drills, which again, they're going to be like switches or boom, boom drills. Um, if, if you're of the Tony Holler um, thought process, um, that's how most coaches refer to those as, and again, that's where, so we can go through boom, booms and we can give them, um, and I just call them switches, but you can give them very technical uh, not very technical cues, but that's where some cues might come into play. Um, whatever it be, generally for me, it's strike down, snap up with um, each of the feet. Um, it's big on posture. So some of our technical or tactile um, positions are going to happen there. So again, I kind of gave the example of hands on waist or hands on the hips with the hip flexor activity, maybe it's a hands overhead or dowel overhead. If you have a large group, probably you don't have 80 dowels that you're going to bring out, nor would that be necessary. Um, but again, maybe there's something because it's going to be impossible to coach all 80 of those, of those kids and cue all 80 of those kids. So what are the most important cues to me? Striking down, snapping up, having that kind of switch thought process of, of the legs and posture, the most important things. And probably the, the cues that can be shared with all of those students and they're going to hopefully, hopefully it'll resonate with them. Then from there, how can we drive it home even more? To me, it's through those kind of the tactile cues. So um, if it is hands overhead, here's the reason why we're going hands overhead. I want you to heal, feel from your hips, shoulders to hands, reaching up to the sky, not back. Um, reaching up to the sky and I want you to still have that violent switch, that snappy switch, strike down, snap up. Um, and we'll go through singles, doubles, triples, whatever, meaning one switch, two switch, three switch, um, whatever it may be. Um, and you can advance those, but it doesn't have to get too crazy. And then same thing, hopefully you're not gonna, you know, you can be the best coach in the world. A session with 50 students is going to be really hard, especially to really coach somebody technically. Don't think you're going to solve all the world's problems. Um, I think that's probably the best advice that I can give the coaches is, is take that pressure off yourself. You're not going to like drastically change every single kid there in that session. It takes time. It takes some of those remedial drills, some of those basic, especially if you're working with if you're working with middle or high school students, you can do a lot more with them uh, or you're going to benefit them greatly with those um, basic skill coordination drills of skipping, galloping, hopping, bounding. Um, you're going to do more for them there than probably you are in any sort of technical um, cueing and coaching anyway. 
Um, so to me, take the pressure off yourself when you, if you are going to use some form of drilling um, from a technical standpoint for the students, um, keep that pressure off yourself. Try to coach a few kids up. Um, use some words that are going to help everybody. Um, obviously, don't call a kid out, but see if a kid because what what's every kid is typically going to ha- struggle with a few things, either shoulders, excessively rotated forward. That's something you can coach the whole group up on of, of reaching up or whatever it may be. Again, depending on if you have a constraint, um, kids are going to maybe have some backside action. Again, you can use that hip flexor cue. Find something that's going to check uh, one of those boxes or kind of um, apply to everyone there and be a coaching point to everyone there instead of individualizing or, or trying to point out one or two specific kids, um, because that's where you fluster yourself, frustrate yourself and just get wrapped up. And I've got to like make everyone again, you're on your own. So um, clearly those kids, whether they have to be there um, in most situations, they don't in one capacity or another. Um, They're choosing to be there. They're choosing. They they chose either to go to the school. They chose to be a part of the strength and conditioning program. They chose to be there that session because they want to be coached by you. Um, remember that and coach them to the best of your abilities, but don't put so much pressure on yourself that I have to, again, solve this kid's movement issues right here, right now. That's, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, so again, through the technical drills, we'll go through a couple, um, sets, a couple reps of technical drills, and then I'm not going to have wickets or anything, um, along those lines for a large group like that. It's just not reasonable. Um, if anybody came and saw us train one of our North Broward prep groups, meaning my students, I'm actually not going to have the wickets out there. The wickets are for smaller groups. The wickets are for groups that I have a lot more time to be with. So speed school, we use them a lot because those kids could be there with me for four hours if they want to be. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I'm not restricted or constricted by any sort of time constraints um, or anything along those lines. We have time with the kids. We can, if, if a kid nicks a a mini hurdle it's okay you know whereas it can get really like if you've got 40 minutes for a session it just it's not going to make much sense so um we don't bring wickets out there so then our um kind of constraint based sprint would be whatever that that tactile um thought was for the day so if it's a dowel overhead if it's hands on hips we're going to, just like we did through the skips and gallops, we're going to increase the amplitude or the intensity of what's happening. So now we're not doing the the, the technical drills. We're applying it to a, a higher effort sprint, if that makes sense. So a uh, sprint, it'll, it'll open up. You know, the way that I like to break it down, actually in track season, we'll time those. Um, so say a dowel overhead, we'll do a timed dowel overhead sprint, uh, fly 30, 40, or 50, and we'll do a uh, uh, fly 30, 40, or 50 without the dowel. Um, and what I like to do there is generally we'll have at least two reps at, uh, and again, we're kind of increasing range if we're talking 30, 40, 50, and we're talking a little bit more top speed. But if, if we're going that range, I'll usually give them two reps at it with the constraints. Um, the first rep, I want them to make look as pretty as possible, if that makes sense. Like, hey, we just went through this technical progression. I want you to make it how you think I want it to look. And generally, they'll look pretty and, you know, it'll look the way that if, if, you, if you made a pro, uh, kinogram of, of their, their, their sprint rep there, it's going to look like exactly how you want it. 
time's probably not going to be as fast as they want it to be. And then the second one, I say, hey, there's a reason why we went through those drills. There's a reason why we're using this dowel, but I want you to just hit it. Um, and then again, generally, you know, it doesn't look quite as pretty, but they're still applying some of the principles that you tried to um, touch on and teach them on. And the sprint times generally are better. And then we take the dowel away and we hit it um, for a sprint without it. Um, and that's generally, again, it could vary in volume. It could vary, obviously, depending on what our distance is. I'm not going to get too into detail there, but that's been something that's helped me is, again, we're not, I don't have to overcoach that. Using a word of making it look pretty sounds ridiculous, but kids figure it out that way. Generally, they do a good job of, of doing what I want it to look like. And then again, that, that sprint model, they might make it look how, you know, um, you know, Usain Bolt looks when he's sprinting, but they're not moving anywhere near as fast as them. They're probably moving less, um, not quite as fast as they could. So then I want to give them just the opportunity to apply it and sprint how they feel within their bandwidth of, of what is right. Um, cause again, you don't want them thinking too much through sprinting because that's obviously going to slow them down. So it gives a bunch of teaching points and then you know, maybe that's it for the day. Maybe it's something where we're finishing with, you know, some sort of playful game or something like that, remembering that they are kids. Um, and I think that's a big bit that can be used with large groups as well. We play sharks and minnows on an almost daily basis. And that's kind of where it's like tag and you got to get to the other side of the field if anybody's ever played that. So, um, yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, but the number one thing is like take the stress off of yourself. Know that it's it's just you out there, and there's you're gonna you're gonna do the best that you can, and you use the right things and design the program that fits for you. Some coaches also might be better with their words, and maybe you know your session's gonna look a little bit different than mine is. Um, but generally, that's our breakdown. And again, that that breakdown really isn't far off what I'm gonna do one on one with a higher level athlete or one of our kids. It's just the um, the approach to it is going to be different and the, um, the coaching behind it is going to be slightly different. So you mentioned hopping and bounding because that's something that anyone that's seen on, yep. your, on your social media, that's something that you've spoke about a lot and a lot of video resources yep. and things. Where does this, where does hopping and bounding come into play? I mean, move away from the large group. You've got a smaller group. Where we, what we're starting with, what what do our progressions look like? What do our regressions look like when we're talking about banding and hopping? Yeah, and that can obviously, I've <laughs> shared like 20 posts, I think maybe of like some of our bounding progressions and it can be a long winded. It's, I'll try to keep it as simple as this. Um, firstly, I failed to mention generally where this fits in and I will do it with our large groups because I want, I want everybody to be able to bound in some capacity. We have our um, interior offensive defensive linemen that are, that are the guys that maybe are closer to 300 pounds that a high volume of bounding is just not wise for them. Um, but I still want them to learn some of the ideas behind it. And I still want them to catch a rep or two on a daily, you know, on the days that we're training in. Um, but generally before it might just depend on what is happening in that day, generally right before we increase the amplitude of the skips and gallops, that's where I kind of squeeze in some of our hop and bound introduction, especially the bounding. I mean, hopping, most of the kids, what happens in hopping is a, a wide level, a, a wide range of things. So hopping in my terminology, and I think I'm correct in saying this, our hops 
especially our single leg hops mean you're hopping on the same leg. Bounding means you're alternating. Um, so just again, let me just use that as my general terms of how I'm how I'm using that. So when I tell a kid to hop, um, yeah, their first thought might be to send their shoulders forward and rush their feel what it's supposed to feel like. Um, generally, like uh, a bound. So my why I'm saying this is a speed bound or an acceleration bound is different than a bound for distance. Uh, a speed acceleration bound has been a little bit easier for us to teach than a bound for distance. Um, think like a standing triple jump or a true bound for distance. That's that's where in in the states at least a lot of a lot of strength and conditioning coaches have used standing triple jumps as a metric as an indicator of what they're doing training wise, and that's been an influential piece of of their program. So. That's generally how I speak to the coaches in the states. Is thinking, okay, if you want to, if you want to do a standing triple jump, let you know, let's look at doing it right. You know, this is this is how we do it, and the the event of track and field has influenced me. The excuse me, the event of triple jump in track and field has influenced me quite a bit. It's become my favorite event. Um, that kind of learning the event almost from scratch. I never did it growing up. Um, learning the event and seeing what high level bounders do. Um, also, you won't be surprised to find out most of the high-level bounders are also very high-level sprinters. So what I saw of bounding and what was happening through triple jump practice and training throughout the track season, I saw a great degree of improvement in RSI scores and saw a great degree of improvement in fly times and fly sprint times. I have no way to say that definitively that's the reason, but, and yes, certainly our triple jumpers were some of our highest level athletes. Um, so it's not surprising that a little dosage is going to help them quite a bit, but there were, there was a great deal of improvement. So that's why we wanted to use bounding and see bounding as something that's, that's important to use. Um, the learning progression that we go there is I like to introduce hops before bounds because a lot of the things that happen through hops at the foot specifically are similar to what's going to happen in bounds. It's a, it's a way of kind of like just going from, if you watch a kid skip, you watch a kid gallop, generally, naturally they go that heel to toe rolling foot contact versus a more striking contact that happens in sprinting. When you teach a kid to hop again, you might see some shoulders excessively forward. You might see a kid rushing to get to whatever mark we have, whatever distance we have them getting. But when they understand that they're hopping for distance, they're going to naturally start to find that it's going to work better and they're going to cover more ground if they make that full foot or hind foot contact rolling over to the toe and projecting outward. Versus again, like kind of a ball of the foot toey contact where they're they might be going fast, but they're not covering a whole lot of ground on those hops. So, ways that we can introduce hops, um, or ways that we can use hops again, just like the skips and gallops, you can hop for height, you can hop for distance, you can hop for speed, you can hop for height and distance. Hopping for distance and hopping for speed, you're going to see two very different things. Again, if you're hopping for speed, you're going to see a more ball of the foot contact. The rotation is going to be forward. The lean is going to be forward um, that they're, again, trying to get there quick. It, when you see a kid that can hop for distance effectively and efficiently, their posture is going to naturally come more upright. They're going to have more um, forward casting of the leg, um, and they're going to have a more hind foot contact which to me is the 
is the line that connects the dot between sprinting and bounding, um, or maybe the line that separates the dot between sprinting and bounding, because the biggest struggle for kids learning bounding for distance, in my opinion, is trying to make it look too much like sprinting. So hopping, we're able to easily and effectively help the athletes understand, okay, hind foot contact versus ball of the foot contact or forefoot contact. Um, and then naturally, so say like the simplest progression we can go towards bounding is starting with hopping. Heel hops is what I call them for the sake of our kids. So when they hear heel, they think, okay, I need to make heel contact or, and, and if you over coach the heel, generally they'll probably go flat footed or full footed, um, because they're so used to being over the, over the forefoot. So, um, I, I call them heel hops, just nice, easy. And again, that amplitude doesn't have to be crazy. That's not going to add any sort of shin distress or lower limb distress or anything like that. Um, so they can go nice, easy heel hops. Um, you can increase the amplitude and you can go for more distance. And again, generally they find the right contact on the ground or at least placement of their foot on the ground. And then the way that we might go about that is, okay, you're going eight hops for distance on your right leg. And then coming back, you'll do eight hops for distance on your left. Okay. And then the next one's going to be five hops on your right bound five hops on your left. And that bound needs to be your biggest jump of the rep. Um, and then you can go three hops on your right, three hops on your left, three hops on your right, three hops on your left with bounds in between that. Again, you're just kind of just, okay, we're hopping. You feel the heel contacts. Now let's throw a little bit more bounding in there until ultimately you get to the point of two hops on each. And you can hopefully get to a point then where you're bounding after that. Now there's a lot more progressions that'll go into play that are more so kind of learning or teaching progressions, um, that, that would be a conversation in itself, but generally going hops and bounds, that's been a pretty seamless way, the simplest way to introduce it. Um, again, last summer, last summer, we went through a very detailed technical progression. This summer, we have a large number of returning students um, that we can go right into those hops and bounds that again, there's new students there that are going to have to um, go through some of our regressions. Um, but that's been a pretty easy way to go um, and, and introduce hops and bounds. Love that. And anyway, you, like you said at the start, you've put a lot of resources out on your specific on your Instagram. So there's mm -hmm. plenty of people yep. who want more info. We can, can dive in there, can't they? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I have all the bounding information on there. I have all the pretty much, pretty much what I shared there was my slides for my bounding course. And then through the course, I go into more detailed conversation um, feel free to reach out to me, anybody that wants to see more of that. I am going to, so since I've, I've been here and I told you I had some, some time here this week, I, I've recorded some skips and gallop progressions as well that I'm going to be sharing here in the, um, maybe by the time this podcast is out, there might be some information there as well. So yeah, please feel free. Anybody come over to the Instagram. It's coach underscore Garish, G-A-R-R-I-S-H. And, um, I have a lot of that information and you'll see, even if you watch some of my stories from a daily basis of what our students are doing, you're going to see a lot of this and you're going to see the large number of students and also the small number of individuals, maybe in different sessions. And you'll see that many times they're doing some of the same things. Um, if you want to get a feel for that as Love well. That. Well, you've, you've, you've jumped ahead and, and got the Instagram handle out there. That saves me asking the question. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, do you have a website, John? Are you, 
is it everything through? I, okay, I no, do not. Cool. No, no. That's generally yeah. where that's generally where I communicate is is through Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter as well, but I'm not on there near as often. I'm usually just scrolling on there. Um, I like to communicate through okay. Instagram. Well, I've taken the time that I promised you, so I'm going to let you get back to that that beautiful outdoor weather um, that I can see yes, over sir. you over your left shoulder. And um, thank you for your time. Really appreciate you sharing. I know thank you. you like you've mentioned a couple of times with the Instagram, always sharing really good stuff over there. So I appreciate you coming on and uh, and doing exactly the same thing as I knew you would on the podcast. So I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Great opportunity. It It was nice to talk. Thanks, buddy. Speak soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 406 of the Pace to Performance podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with John. Big thanks to John for giving up his time and huge congratulations on his award, which we mentioned at the start of this episode. And also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Kitman Labs, Hytro, Samsung Equipment and Play for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I always do appreciate their support. Big thanks for tuning in and I will chat to you next time.